koutou, katoa ki te whakarongo mai, koutou ki te panel, Core Wallace Chapinaho. Coming up on the program today, a massive clean-up is underway in the Papatoi uh, suburb uh, in Auckland after the destructive force of a tornado. One person, Janesh Prasad, tragically killed at the ports of Auckland Freight Hub. Niwa's Chris Brandolino joins us on the weather of the past couple of days. Also, women are less likely to make ACC claims, more likely to be declined when they do, and get a lot less compensation than men, figures show. What's the solution? Otago University law lecturer Dawn Duncan on that. And sports history made. Laurel Hubbard for Team NZ to become the first transgender athlete to compete at the Olympic Games. Sports journalist Zoe George on that issue. And... Well, Winston Peters, he's back, sort of, and he's railing against cancel culture and the increasing use of the word Aotearoa. What do you think of that? 2101 is the number to text us. You can get us uh, by that, or you can email us, the panel at rnz.co.nz. With me this afternoon, Heather Roy, former Act Deputy Leader and Minister, Professional Director and Business Consultant with Talkpoint. Talk Point. Kia ora, Heather. Kia ora, Willis. And Gary Moore, former Mayor of Christchurch, haven't uh, had you on for a while, Gary, so nice to have you on the program. Tenakoto, Wallace and Heather. And with our story of the day, uh, Robert Kelly. Kia ora, Rob. Kia ora. How are we all doing? I'm very well. Thank you very much. We're doing well. Excellent. I've got a very strong vibe of a day at school where everyone's stuck inside. In, Welli- in Wellington, it's been <laughs> raining for about what feels like 17 years. Yeah. And yes. I don't know if anyone else has this, but that smell of wool. Yes. Wet, wet wool in classrooms, and everyone's yeah. a little You've bit manic. Sitting on the heaters. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit too hot inside, it's a little bit too cold outside, yeah. and everyone's cruising for a fight. But Gosh, <laughs> I'm just, can I jump in there? Yeah. That's quite a memory, Heather. That's a school memory. The cold, cold Nelson Day, intermediate school days, and you had those cent- that central heating by the side of the wall. Yes, that's right, the radiators that you the could radiators. sit on. There was a race for them. I wasn't, I would was at East Otago High School, so much further south than Nelson Wallace. <laughs> it was even colder. What do you have, Rob? Well, I want to do a quick quiz. So it's the anniversary this week of the first ever cell phone call. And I want to do a quick round the panel. So we'll start with you, Heather. When do you think, what year do you think the first cell phone call happened in? Mm. You can give me a decade if you feel more comfortable with that. Decade. The 80s. The 80s. Yeah. Gary? It was definitely the 80s. Kia ora. Wallace? Definitely the 80s. Uh, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm putting it at 1982. There's a very strong uh, generational bias, I think, coming, <laughs> c- coming through there. Um, you're all wrong. You're all back what? to school. You're off by decades. Oh. The first phone call on a mobile phone was made on June the 17th in 1946. Proof. Wow. Okay. Uh, well, okay. Um, <laughs> so so my, my question back to you is, mm. w- did you have a brick for your first cell phone? Um, I will tell you how much it weighed, <laughs> Gary. The The first cell phone uh, was 80 pounds, oh, which no. in real money is about 36 kilo. <laughs> yeah. uh, and you needed a hardly, car. Hardly needed... mobile. No. Well, it was technically mobile because you could drive it yeah. around, but there were only 12 of them. So depending on who you wanted to call, it was quite a limited <laughs> spectrum. Did it work? It did work. Um, No one really thought it was going to. It grew out of uh, the Second World War, 
where every scientist in the world was tasked with trying to come up with something that would win the war. Mm. And a large group of people who later ended up working for AT&T and Motorola uh, were trying to work out how they could communicate with each other across the field of battle. So that ended up being a thing called a hand talkie, uh, which was around for a bit in war and then got turned into a civilian purpose afterwards. Mm. Um, It was a pretty hectic thing, though, because you had to pick up the handset and then call a switchboard operator who would then put you through (laughs) to whoever you wanted to talk to. Mm. Um, The first handheld mobile phone came out in 1973. So 1982, not so far off. Oh, quite a way off. Ten years. Ten years. So in 1973, um, there was phone there, but it took another three decades before half the US population had a mobile phone, which is the measure that historians are using for how common something becomes. So it's the 80s when they become available to people, essentially. Mm. Um, Up until the... Even in the early (coughs) 80s, though, it was very difficult to get access. There were 2,000 subscribers in New York City, but they shared 12 channels. So you had to wait in a waiting room Mm. until one of the channels became available. It's hardly what we'd call direct communication. Gary, what was your first cell phone? Can you remember? Well, mine was a brick, and I'm sorry I'm trying to stop a cough here. Um, Mine was a brick, and in fact they were quite funny because you could use them around the city, parts of the city, but if you drove out of the city, that was it. Gone. Heather? To be honest, I can't remember. My my first real cell phone was a BlackBerry. Right. Yeah. That was much later. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I had yeah. one of them too. They were wonderful. Yeah, they were. I loved my BlackBerry. Yes. My yes, first cell phone was about 96. And can you remember the days, Rob, where, or you may or may not, but uh, in the late 90s, the trend was not for cell phones to get, or smartphones to get, uh, yes, yeah, cell phones to, to be larger. The trend was to be as small as possible, a.k.a. Zoolander. Yes. So, yeah, slick little phones. Slick little phones. Uh, and we went through that thing where everything was getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Mm. And now we appear to live in an era that uh, <laughs> getting they're getting bigger, bigger, and bigger and bigger and bigger yeah. to the point that you're essentially carrying around what in the 1980s would be considered a, a TV <laughs> oh, uh, in your pocket. Uh, well, the mm. other thing, too, is none of them matched Maxwell Smart's shoe. No, the shoe no, phone is pretty special. That's a good point. That's a good point, Gary. But you, so you had a because I when, when it comes to the when it comes to the heyday of I guess the cell phone, I've got an image on my mind, and I think it's on ended on screen of um, you know a pre crash of the mid eighties mm. and financiers walking down Queen Street, the Golden Mile, with these quite big. Like um, suitcase phones, or or, or or at least bricks. So yeah. was yours yeah. quite big? Yes, yes, it was, and they were quite heavy too, and. Um, but they, you know, just think back. Like, we take it for granted. But, like, if we dug my Irish grandfather up again and we said, Grandad, we're talking to you from the car, he'd say, how did you get a wire that long? You know, yeah. it's sort of... <laughs> we, we just take things for granted. Mm. And the speed of change is amazing as well. So the idea for this was in the, around in the 40s. And there were scientists speculating about the kind of networks that we have now and thinking that they were essentially blue-sky dreaming. But you'd never know what the technology is that's in front of you that's going to change the way something works. So Daniel Bliss uh, has written this wonderful piece for The Conversation about what he thinks the next cell phones might be. Oh, okay. Um, And so he says it's very hard to predict uh, the way that technology develops, but what you can predict is how people behave. So what are people going to want... 
and he thinks that the next thing is probably going to be non non typing uh, messaging. Yeah. So in some way or another, we're going to be able to think something, and it will be sent. Uh, yeah. to someone else. Whether that's done through some kind of neural link, uh, which we don't have the technology for yet, no. but we're not necessarily particularly far away. Um, but he thinks that something that might come in, and this sounds completely um, bananas to me, but using your hand and a radar signal on the phone tracks your hand and you can, um, the way that, you, it's almost like sign language. Signing, yeah. And then it goes through. And he thinks that potentially... Over time, we're going to become a lot more non-verbal in terms of that kind of communication because it takes less time. I don't know if he's right or not, but it's a really interesting idea. Just amazing that someone uh, says, here is the movie ad ad advertisement advertising the new cell phone, showing each step of how it worked and installing the battery on the boot of the car. It's quite (laughs) comical now. It just shows, Heather Roy, doesn't it, the... I guess the pace of technology, but one really never knows which direction it goes because I can recall back in the 90s, it was touted, back in the 80s rather, it was touted that the, the video phone would be the next. You know, it would be face-to-face and the technology was there, but we didn't really adapt to seeing each other's faces so readily. No, and it does come back to human behaviour, doesn't it? Just the mm. way that people want to communicate. Yeah, We don't change very much. No. The right. world around us changes mm. quite a lot, but we're pretty stubborn. And we like to operate pretty much in the same way. That's why I love reading diaries from thousands of years ago. Because it's all just gossip. <laughs> Good um, on your right No so, worries. So, my, last, my last point yeah. was is just about price. So in, uh, in the 1980s, in 1983 in Chicago, where the first modern cellular system was put in place, a car phone, which was still seen as the big thing then, was $2,500 in 1983. And a portable phone was $4,000 um, just for the kit. So you're spending quite a lot of money. 75 yeah. years old, the cell phone. Well, I never knew. Rob Kelly have done it again. Thank you for that. <laughs> Thanks, Wallace. <laughs> uh, it is five to four. Uh, time for I've been thinking. Heather Roll, would you like to start? Thanks, Wallace. Um, I've been thinking about rural bank customers and especially elderly customers with limited travel options. They must be feeling that there's a conspiracy against them when it comes to banking. You know, they've recently had cheques withdrawn. I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing, but for them that's a significant change. And banks... Um, are progressively moving out of the the regions and having less of a presence. Uh, And I think that's pretty hard for small communities to cope with. Um, I grew up in a little town, Palmerston, in Otago. uh, And while I was um, a teenager, two banks closed there, the two two local banks. It's only a small town of 1,000 people. The BNZ closed and the Westpac, which had been a trust bank, closed. And that made life particularly difficult for the local businesses who then had to travel to Dunedin, 40, 40 miles away, to um, to bank their, their earnings and also to get change. And for elderly people, it was a significant adjustment. And I think this, this drama just keeps going on and on. And, you know, in a day and age when we've got um, these big Australian banks now making huge profits, they can't actually 
service these small communities or are choosing not to. They could if they wanted to. You know, electricity companies manage to get out, get power lines to remote New Zealand locations. So why can't the banks with their huge profits do the same? I know that's an issue that does touch a lot of New Zealanders, Heather, so we'll get a bit mm. of response on that. Uh, just briefly before we get to Gary, what about these hubs, though? I mean, these these, yeah. these, these smart ATMs. Well, I thought they were actually a pretty good thing. And why can't the banks get together? If you know, I looked at their purpose statements. They all talk about serving customers well and helping our communities prosper. Um, but their actions don't speak to that. If they can't individually support a bank in a small place, why can't they get together and support these hubs? Um, have, have one premise that, you know, m- Monday morning could be BNZ day and okay. Westpac day could be Thursday afternoon. I don't know why that couldn't work. And they've got great technological um, access. They could do all sorts of right. things, I think, if they really wanted to. Kia ora, Helen. Gary Moore, I've been thinking. Uh, in newsroom this morning, there was an excellent article on the water reforms proposed by the government and councils threatening to opt out. And I totally endorse those that are complaining, and I don't know why local government isn't objecting much stronger. Christchurch has opted out or thinking of opting out? Yes. Mm. And these reforms are driven by Water NZ, which has chemical companies as members and internal affairs. And it has risen because of the Hawke's Bay water disaster, which was caused by bad management of assets by the council and poor monitoring of the bores, bores by the Ministry of Health. And I accept that there's been an underinvestment of in, in infrastructure, but effectively nationalising the solution with four centrally controlled bureaucracies is not the answer. At the moment, it is impossible to privatise the most essential of our personal resources, water. With a small number of structures to privatise after these proposed reforms, where will our water be controlled from in the future? USA, UK, Australia, China? The issue is underinvestment in infrastructure, which can be attended to by central government funding assistance. The other is water standards, and these can be attended to by the Ministry of Health doing the job they are paid to do right now. Mm. Perhaps local government isn't the best place to have responsibility for water. Given, I don't agree with you. Given, given the massive, <laughs> well, yeah, you're former mayor, so you wouldn't. Well, uh, no, no, no. But when, while I was mayor, we did a review of all of our pipes in Christchurch and mm-hmm. invested where we had to invest. And I think that um, there's, a, there's a whole centralising thrust coming from the government. And water is something that I think we in the cities and provinces of New Zealand need to stand up and say we want local control. Right. Kia ora, Gary. Thank you for that. All right, uh, Gary Moore, Heather Roy with me on this afternoon's panel. Lovely, as always, to have your company. I'm Wallace Chapman here, 4 to 5, right here on RNZ National.